Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison. again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting and I would say important show. I have invited two uh, colleagues and dear friends of mine to speak about a subject that is, you could say, really key, fundamental to our entire psyche, and that is our relationship to authority. This is something we can kind of dance and skip on top of as our lives move on. But unless we actually really dig in and take a good, hard, sober look at it, it can dominate us in ways that, well, authority really can do. Reaching back to our original relationship with the first authority figures in our lives, our parents, then our siblings, friends, teachers, up through political figures, not to mention our relationship with God, him, or herself. We can see how our psyche is influenced and shaped, for better or for worse, by our relationship to and thinking about authority. To join me today in this roundtable are Donald Farrell, Jungian analyst, and Joanna Mincer, his wife. Don has a distinguished career as a Jungian psychoanalyst before that professor of religion, philosophy, and psychology out in the Midwest, and he is the author of Logos and Existence, The Relationship of Philosophy and Theology in the Thought of Paul Tillich. He has been in private practice both in New York City and in Vermont for many, many years. Joanna Luria Mincer, his wife, is a lecturer and educator in the interdisciplinary fields of depth psychology, theology, and the arts. Since 1973, Joanna has been engaged in the study and teaching of the nature of the holy after Auschwitz. Fundamental to this work is her commitment to the analytic process of Jungian depth psychology and its archetypal approach to the human search for meaning. As a Jewish theologian, educated at a Christian seminary and mentored by Nobel Peace Prize winner Elie Wiesel, Ms. Mincer draws upon painting, poetry, the spiritual insights of both Jewish and Christian traditions, Holocaust testimony, and post-Holocaust literature and theology in her quest for meaning in our current age. So I'm very pleased to have both Don and Joanna with me today to talk about this subject that both of them have given a tremendous amount of thought to, as have I. And it will be really very enriching for me and, God willing, the audience to hear what we have to share together as we find ourselves positioned in this rather powerful, unique, and peculiar way 
in many respects with our current administration in in political power and looking around our political and economic situation both in this country and worldwide that is more extreme and more polarized than perhaps any other time that we can remember in recorded history. So first of all, Don and Joanna, I'd like to welcome you to A Better World Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you both. Thank you, Thank you very much, Mitchell. It's good to be here. I'm so glad. So we're tackling is, is a Don subject. There? Yes, I'm here. Don is here, yes. Uh, we're tackling a subject this evening that is something, as I was saying before, each of us in our own respective ways has given a lot of thought to and have been relying upon our understanding of it in a lot of the work we do with our clients and with our students and colleagues. So, Don, if you wouldn't mind, please start us off with what you think about and what you reflect on as you consider the importance of our relationship to authority and how that's applicable in today's world with all that we are dealing with and in many ways struggling with in understanding what's happening historically, politically, and economically. Well, I, um, I think that I would say that I have become most interested in the problem of authority by uh, focusing on the history of the 20th century and the rise of uh, totalitarian regimes um, that used absolute authority uh, but did so with some uh, support from the populations they tyrannized. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the case uh, in point is uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, and so I became interested in uh, the use of power in political um, life by studying... Uh, the history of uh, Nazism in Germany, and uh, that I was teaching then, and so I, I taught a course on um, the, the the whole question of how this this kind of event can take place in mm-hmm. civilized society and in, in the civilized world, uh, and that. I continued to work on that whole question, and when I met Joanna uh, some 30 years ago, uh, found that she was also deeply engaged in the question of the Holocaust and had been studying with Elie Wiesel. Um, We joined um, together in, I think, making this question of how is it possible that uh, civilized human beings can be under the influence of uh, leadership that is demonic and destructive and ultimately um, evil, and to do so with some willingness to give their freedom over to such leaders. Um, and that led us to, uh, in the early 90s, uh, Joanna and I led a, a interfaith study group to the death camps, in Poland and in Germany, and um, 
I think that Joanna might want to say something uh, at this point about that experience and the kinds of questions that it brought to us. Joanna, can you speak to that? Um, I can try. Um, the 1993 interfaith group that we led um, was, uh, for me, the second time I had been to the death camps in Poland. Um, it was interesting to see the change between 1978 when I was there and 1993. The, po- the, the, um, the popular. Uh, collective had begun to focus on the Holocaust in ways that um, the culture in 1978 had not. So in 93, when we were there, uh, it it happened to be when um, Steven Spielberg had just filmed his um, uh, movie Schindler's List. List. So uh, there was much more um, public display and Auschwitz had become something of a tourist magnet, and so it was rather changed in some ways compared to in 78. But at any rate, um, I think what we discovered, Don and I, in this interfaith group, which we did with Dr. Eva Fleischner, who's also quite an authority in this um, field, was that it was very difficult for all of us to integrate what we were experiencing even though most of us were trained theologians and had studied this quite deeply um, it was a very painful trip where unconscious forces were uh, really stirred up and I think that segues into the issue that you're raising Mitchell about what authoritarian, totalitarian regimes do to the collective and to the individual and how the unconscious gets um, stirred up in ways that we cannot fully appreciate. And I think that's where it ties in today, how fear and anxiety threats to certain people's threats from an enemy outside ourselves begins to touch our unconscious and if we are not in in dialogue with those inner forces trouble starts mm-hmm. well put Joanna I want to kind of broaden this a little bit because it's interesting it's sort of like uh, the holocaust Hitler's holocaust becomes sort of a a vortex and a sinkhole for all discussions about authority. When and and rightly so, I, I don't know about all, but certainly it is one of those holocausts of just the 20th century. I would argue that there have been holocausts uh, that we need to be alarmed by that really completely speckle human history, recorded history. And this is more recent and in our memory, just about. And so it has the greatest, greatest kind of uh, magnetism, if you will. But a turn of the clock a bit before is the Armenian Holocaust, even during World War II. And before we had Stalin, 
where so many millions of people passed and died. And then we had Mao Zedong, again, millions upon millions. But so I think that when we see people of closer to our own ilk, and I would like to hear both of you respond to this, more that look like us and sound like us, we have a much more powerful reaction. And when it happens to be Asians or Armenians, for that matter, even, which are kind of Central Asian, we don't have the same kind of responsivity. It's kind of curious when you look at the entire panorama of the human psyche. What's that about also? It's sort of like death isn't the same for everyone. I'd Mm. like to respond to that just briefly. I think part of the problem is not so much that the uh, genocides that preceded the Holocaust um, don't uh, affect us. I think we really, they did not surface in history in the same way for the Western mind and the, or, or you can look at the Native American genocide. I, and part of what I've work I've done is to indicate that the reason why the Jewish Holocaust took hold is because, in a way, they are people of the book. They are a people of history, and they bore witness to their own annihilation in a way that mm-hmm. the Armenians did not, and the mm-hmm. Native Americans could not, and ma- I was just teaching with Don at the Jung Institute, and there was a Chinese woman in the class, and we were talking about all this. Mm-hmm. And she responded by saying, you know, we had, she was a victim, her parents were a victim of the Mao Zedong um, re-education. And she said, none of this has surfaced yet, even in the Chinese culture, partly because it is a totalitarian mm. regime still, but it has not yeah. surfaced in their history. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there are distinctions, and it could be, for the reasons you're suggesting, that the process of the German Holocaust uh, was in some way much more conscious and and in our face. And, uh, you know, as Westerners, we were also more developed technologically, so information through media could also get to us here across the pond much more rapidly than what was going on in a place like China or Armenia, for that matter, in different eras. So, yes. uh, good points. Don, I know you want to weigh in here. Well, um, what, what I was led to um, in reflecting on this whole question of power and its abuse um, in, within political systems uh, was that I, I decided to try to look at Hitler again as a um, primary example, and I wrote a paper on Hitler's psychology that I published in the early 90s, that just after we returned from the death camp trip experience. Mm-hmm. Which I have and, right here in my hand. Aha, yes. yes. And I came to the conclusion, um, and of course my Jungian background led me in certain ways in that direction, that to try to apply ordinary human categories to this figure in terms of trying to understand him 
led to um, unsatisfactory results. That that the the way that we might try to approach any clinical case, for example, by using clinical diagnostic uh, categories, uh, simply could not grasp the uh, reality of this figure in terms of his utter destructiveness. And I began to understand that there was something archetypal coming to expression in his uh, experience in his life uh, that I defined as his becoming uh, categorically identified with the dark side of the psyche uh, and in a sense identifying with the archetype of the sacred executioner who has a sanctioned and divine purpose in bringing uh, life to an end among certain designated uh, uh, victims. Uh, and that to try to understand him required an archetypal approach uh, where in his, in his uh, identification with the dark side of the self, which I argued came out of his, his um, early childhood abuse. Now, again, I'm using a, a clinical psychological category there to create some kind mm-hmm. of causality. Yes. Uh, but that, that what the cultural piece was, that um, if Alice Miller is right in her analysis of this culture, that it was not considered appropriate to allow children in uh, Hitler's era uh, to express a, uh, forms of grief and mourning, especially boys. And mm-hmm. Alice Miller wrote this book in which she argued that uh, a whole generation of of children grew up under what she called poisonous pedagogy, where they were not allowed to show um, the the signs of suffering that were being inflicted upon them by their own parents in the kind of pedagogy that they were practicing. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Miller uh, uh, documented that, that Hitler was severely abused by his father uh, during his childhood, um, and he could not mourn that suffering and developed, I would say, a reaction formation to it, uh, mm-hmm. which then meant that from a Jungian point of view, uh, his ego was uh, compensated by the darkness that he that he experienced, and he identified with the dark side of the self, and uh, lived it out in a way that we still can't e- uh, easily imagine. Uh, and part of what this points to is that there was something numinous about this man in his effects upon uh, the, the German public. And I think what it touched was not only um, a man who was full of rage, who projected his enemies onto the world, and especially, of course, in the figure of the Jew, uh, and who gave his people permission because they, too, had suffered uh, terrible loss during World War I and humiliation, to hate and to see themselves as uh, victims stabbed in the back, for which the only recourse is to become an absolutely 
powerful state that no Desperate. one can ever treat this way again. And well, I, I would argue that in that whole gestalt of of suffering and power and anguish and inability to mourn and uh, the valorization of of power and and uh, sort of stoic uh, uh, suffering, uh, there was something the numinous open people unconsciously to the the, the desire to worship. Yes. Uh, well, uh, I I think there's a lot to that, and I would interesting as your article is. I, it's more than that. It's um, compelling. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you you have a searing analysis of Hitler and uh, childhood. I would also say that I think revenge, plain, yes. full out revenge about his being treated the way he was by his father was very much a characteristic of what played into his later behaviors toward the Jews and toward anyone that did not fit his model of the superhuman idealized human. Uh, yes. But I'd like to I'd like to also take a whole other perspective here, which is it's one thing to analyze Hitler, and I think it's very, very useful for us to do so. But I'll tell you, my main concern is the rest of us. My yes. concern is people's willingness and readiness toward idolatry, which we were warned about in the Ten Commandments, and nobody yes. seemed to listen. And also, what is this penchant, this proclivity of human beings to get in line and follow someone else, no matter how dark their ideas may be. And I see yeah. that actually as way more the problem than even the Hitlers popping up among us, because they do pop up because there are many people who are terrified and terrorized in very manipulative um, very abusive families all over the world. And right. even if, you know, there are these types that arise, it won't mean much if others aren't ready and willing to play ball. So, Joanna, do you want to jump in here for a moment? And I, I share think your that what Don is suggesting and what you're suggesting as well is that the archetypal authoritarian figure who pops up in various cultures and in particular if we look at Germany or if we look at our own period right now with Trump is that that person becomes the magnet for the same the mirror unconscious motivations in human collectivity so the unmourned wound that Don talked about Mm-hmm. And the revenge energy that you're mentioning, which was part of the first uh, between the wars German psyche for revenge, given how humiliated they were and totally yeah. torn apart culturally, culturally that he, Hitler became a magnet for all that unconscious energy. And similarly, I think, as and I think we need to turn it to our situation today, we... Trump has become a magnet for the unconscious, unmourned wounds of our American psyche. 
and the, the we the people don't even know what is driving this. We have a million different you know interpretations, but mm-hmm. but there is, and I can list a lot of unmourned wounds that and unmourned, unacknowledged sins and evil that we have worked in this country since the uh, genocide of the Native American to mm-hmm. black slavery to a civil war that we have never really dealt with, and I think the chickens are coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chinese enslavement, Japanese internment, yeah. women, exactly. Hispanics, you name it. It is a terrifying history, as you're saying, Joanna. And uh, I sometimes think, how did the conversation begin that makes this country considered so great? Because there is, of course, as we all know, at least two sides to the psyche and at least three sides to every conversation. So on one hand, there is sort of a an idealism that this country represented. On the other hand, you're very much pointing out, and rightfully so, the the shadow that accompanies it. And it's a long dark shadow so done that's right that's that's exactly it and um i you know one of in preparation for this conversation that we're having um i would i turn to timothy snyder's little book on tyranny 20 lessons please share that would be wonderful yeah I and so appreciate he, you know, him. he 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 addresses much of the questions that we're we're tossing around right now. Um, yes. And I would also he he suggests, and I'll quote him. He says, "The habit of dwelling on victimhood dulls the impulse of self-correction." And I think we've fallen into a trap right now, as did Germany in the 20th century between the wars, as Israel is doing even now, that when one is completely obsessed with one's own victimhood, and that plays right into the identity politics that all of us are, are galvanized by now. The, you know, the white supremacists have their identity politics, and everybody else has their identity politics. But when you dwell on the victimhood, we, we ignore the ways in which we can self-improve. And mm-hmm. and so it's just a it's a um, it's an abyss that you fall into, and nothing good comes out of that. But that's at least Would how you, he. I, I I think there's uh, so much merit to it. But you know what's interesting? I mean, this is what I'm saying, and I'd love to hear what you both have to say and perceive here. But I see the extremeness of the current president, Donald Trump who, by the way, I believe the name used to be Drump. Mm -hmm. Somehow I feel that's more appropriate. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that I see his extremeness as polarizing, so polarizing, it's magnetizing the opposite, and people who have maybe felt victimized in the past are coming up to the microphone and speaking out like never before. There's an entire, here we are sitting on the uh, the first day of DACA being 
um, dismantled, right? And mm-hmm. there is a phrase of I am um, undocumented and I am not afraid. That is one of their mm-hmm. call lines. It's very mm-hmm. interesting what's going on. Even the destruction of the Civil War statues in different parts of the country. Uh, you know, this takes acts of heroism and bravery to go and climb up and knock these things down and you're breaking the law and you're subject to, you know, the rule of law, etc., etc. So I guess I'm seeing in the face of uh, a Trump presidency a huge amount of polar activity saying, no, we won't stand for this, thank you very much, even among Republicans. Your thoughts? I think that protest is emerging, yes. And it perhaps suggests that um, we have a a base in the in the in the culture of people who are are not going to um, try to normalize uh, our president or simply put up with him for the remainder of his term, but yeah. who are in fact going to stand up and say this we will not accept. And uh, Alice Miller quotes Hitler as saying it's a great thing for political leaders that people don't think. Uh, that was one of right. one of his operational principles. <clears throat> well, and interesting. It was Freud's brother. I'm sorry, brother, or I'm sorry, cousin, who is the founder of public relations back in the twenties. Yes, that's right. Who's that's right. right? Who also said something not dissimilar from that. Anyway, please go on. Yeah. Well, it, and it was also Trump who said, "I love the uneducated." Yes. 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 I can stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, and no yes. one would say boo. Right? I wouldn't lose one voter. He's How scary is that? I thought his, I thought his nomination was finished with that line. It should have been finished, from my point of view. But well, history is showing us a different lesson. Yes, you were saying done. Well. Uh, we have we do have the the creative minority. Uh, I don't know whether it's becoming a majority or not. It, he did not win the popular vote, so we have um, most of the. I mean, a significant amount of people who didn't vote for him, of course. But sure. we do have at the same time the question: How did he get elected in the first place? Yeah. And. Um, there is an argument uh, that Ken Wilbur is making. He's just come out with a book called Trump in a Post-Truth World, oh. where he says that um, what Trump d- has done, uh, unbeknownst to himself, is to address the um, grievances of the people in the country who, who feel resentment, and uh, feel abandoned by the marginalized of the country, of the country yes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who are ethnocentric and authoritarian, many of them in their personalities. And yes. uh, the kind of language that Trump used, especially during the uh, campaign, was 
uh, it was concealed sort of godlike language. I only, I'm the only one who can solve the economic problems in this country. And mm-hmm. it's going to I know more than the I, generals. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all of that. Right. All of that uh, absolutizing of of his personhood is mm-hmm. is a, an appeal to the part of us, the child in us, perhaps who, yes, if we are in pain, um, even when the father may be causing the pain, we we uh, we are also hearing a strong voice saying, "I'm going to help you. I'm going to save you." All you have to do is follow me, and we will get through this. And I think that that, it, that touches something in us that is uh, subject to regression, and it's, a, it's related to the instinct, uh, that Jung would argue at least, uh, the religious instinct that seeks an object to adore and worship and, and in a way surrender to. And when we project that archetypal piece of ourselves onto anyone, and especially uh, people who are seeking our, our, our devotion and our commitment, uh, we can be easily then led to surrender our own autonomy and our own reason and our own judgment and uh, accept the truth that we feel is coming uh, to, to us through this person. Uh, and I would add to that the fact I think that capitalism has 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 um, is overextended at this point. We live in a plutocracy. We live in a a vast separation of wealth, and we have this president who represented the Midas touch, and mm-hmm. that became. And when you talked about idolatry, that is the ultimate American idol, the golden touch, the money-making man, the entrepreneur. He touched the American psyche in a way that many other presidents did not, and he played on that, and he knew it. And so people with no means you know, would imagine and project their, their wish to have the Midas touch, which is the ultimate American dream. Very true yeah. and very well put. And just let me add an amplification so here. Uh, mm-hmm. The Midas of ancient Greek mythology uh, one day found uh, the satyr who was the mentor of Dionysus, the god Dionysus, drunken mm-hmm. in his in his um, in his garden. Uh, he t- he took him in and took care of him, and Dionysus came and found him and. Uh, told Midas, I will give you whatever you want. And he said, I want anything I touch to turn to gold. And when he touched the, the, the roses and they turned to gold, he was ecstatic. He touched everything, it turned to gold, and then he ordered food. And as soon as he touched it, it turned to gold. And he was on the verge of starvation um, yeah. because he couldn't eat anything. Everything he touched was uh, in- inedible. Uh yeah. Now, Dionysus did give him a way out. He said, you know, you have to go and bathe yourself in this river, and <clears throat> then you, your, your power of touching things will disappear. Uh, I think that part of what Joanna is pointing to here is that we are coming through a time in our culture that we have been under Midas' spell, and we uh, we have now 1% of the population who owns most of the wealth of the planet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, and that that inequality 
Uh, and the way in which now the economic system is organized to serve that 1% at the expense of the 99% like ourselves, um, I, think, I think that's part of the crisis that uh, uh, we, we elected Trump to, to uh, prevent. Uh, yes. And, magically and to add to that, <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. He, he would be the one who would keep the Midas touch alive, and we would not starve yes. Uh, yes. by turning everything well, yeah. into gold. <clears throat> I think it's turning into lead, however. That's another conversation. Joanna, <laughs> that's another conversation. <laughs> about to say. Just yeah. adding and to course, that um, notion of the 1% versus the 99%, uh, Timothy Snyder, who is a professor of 20th century totalitarian regimes and who really understands how the Holocaust is a warning for now, um, discusses how these totalitarian regimes in history have usually um, surfaced when global, uh, global enterprises take hold and people on a local level get um, very threatened by that because wealth accumulates but only in certain pockets. And he saw that in the, um, after the First World War that led into the Second World War. And mm -hmm. uh, I think there was something in the 19th century, I can't remember. But again, he sees us in a global crisis now where global trade and global enterprise has created extreme wealth and extreme distance from wealth, and that gives rise to authoritarian figures because yes. instability in that way creates so much underlying and unconscious anxiety. We see the enemy at the gate, scapegoats get developed, and Trump played right into that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. This is this is the fertile ground for totalitarian regimes, exactly, and that's been historically borne out, just as you're saying. Um, I would love to hear a few more of the uh, tenets of Tim Snyder's um, commentaries. Okay. He mentioned a couple. Yes. Yes. Um, just on the on the on the in a kind of easier ways in which just individuals can. Stay alert. I made a note. Let me find it just one second. There are some practical um, points I believe he made. Yes, very practical points. That are also points. very useful. Yeah. He just, just on very small levels, he says yes. you have to have eye contact. Begin to make eye contact because every person you connect with, every person you leave, make a, a human touch with, is a prevention against turning people into non-humans. And his biggest argument mm -hmm. on the collective is that when a human being, like the Dhaka people, the Dhaka children, have no rights, these people are stateless, and stateless people are people headed for concentration, deportation, and ultimately annihilation. And... Mm -hmm. As he reminded us, people who have been victimized in that way, all of them say they remember the person who acknowledged them on the street as they were walking to a concentration camp, or they remember someone mm -hmm. who threw them bread, or they remember, they remember the small gestures. So he's saying 
All of us on the subway, in the bus depot, on the train, on the sidewalk, say, make eye contact because maybe one of those people is one of the unregistered and fearful people. That's a very simple mm-hmm. thing. Oh, it is. And yeah. then yeah. he taught. There's other. Um, he says, cross boundaries. Go where you don't feel safe. Go where it's not your people. Try to learn and see what they're up to. Have a passport, and he means that on several levels because you might have sure. to flee. Um, sure. But see other cultures. Open yourself Go to beyond other the comfort zone. In other words, exactly, exactly. Um, he also says, be aware of the of the obfuscation and the ultimate destruction of the private life. And he sees the internet as a terrible threat to the private life, and that's how totalitarian regimes take over. He sees WikiLeaks as having been the worst invasion and the um, the emails, the whole thing about the emails during the campaign, how the media played right into the invasion of privacy rather than focusing mm-hmm. on the fact that privacy was invaded. They let, they let the um, spurious information, which had, which had no real implication for anything, take over. And so, people, so Hillary's and, and um, who was the other, Podesta, you know, their privacy was utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that can happen to any one of us. We all know that. So that's another issue. I mean, he, these are very relevant. He also talks very about relevant. Being, I, I would uh, I, I'd like to just pause for a moment and comment to say that I personally don't think <clears throat> it is the Internet that uh, is the issue as much as, of course, people's use of it. But even more than that, and feeding into everything that we're talking about here regarding authority and totalitarianism is the surveillance state. And I think that that is actually much more of an overarching issue of peering, everyone being, everyone being peered into and all veils being pierced in our private lives by a state-owned, manipulative uh, hand and seeing eye into everyone's lives. This Absolutely, he, he goes hand about in that. hand, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that as the issue way more than a WikiLeaks acting on some journalistic level, and we could probably say that maybe there are certain points at which it journalism can also go too far where it starts to get seditious and you know just out of bounds i i would say there's a real case for that too but uh to be made about that but the issue of surveillance um when we look at the nsa and the powerhouse of technology right now if you saw snowden which you probably did i felt that film just searingly oh taught us just what kind of conditions we're currently living in. So, well, just take a, the order that here. Trump made about um, voter rights. He wanted to have every single voter right. registration come to him, and he was going to survey it all. That That right. is it's a complete justice, totalitarian exactly. move. That is tyranny. That's right. That's right. And that that's was right. based on his sense that there were millions of 
unregistered voters who voted against him. And that That's was complete right. conspiracy That's, double speak. Yes. Totally exactly. not true. No truth in it. And that, again, and Don, is an implication. Go ahead. No, please. Finish. Well, uh, Joanna, finish that. that, that I'm I was just going to say that Snyder says that is one more indication of tyranny. Yes. And, Don, in your essay on Hitler, you make that clear that there is uh, no toleration for any uh, political opposition. It's That's annihilated. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's one of the points you made. Yeah. Very and well. The, I, the press yeah. was certainly uh, depotentiated by the Nazi movement, and one of the great enemies that Donald Trump has identified in, in our culture is the, is the press as the enemy, as the of, the enemy of the people. <clears throat> exactly. He has used exactly that phrase. And yes, there yes. have been, not really in this country, but in Mexico, um, very famously just yesterday, uh, a very well-known journalist in India, in Bangalore, was murdered. And, of mm -hmm. course, the president of India, another authoritarian type, is buddy-buddy with our Mr. Trump. So, you know, we have that. And then you look at the Philippines. You see, before, Joanna, you were talking about a global warning and a global condition of the wealthy and uh, the owners of the, all the assets, the 1% and everyone else. Um, we do see the global economic conditions that give rise to this kind of thing. So on the level of solution, especially since we're, our clock is beginning to tick here, what would you say on the level of solutions, Don? Tim Snyder, through what Joanna is sharing with us, is giving us some very poignant um, um, places to go and eye contact and very simple, real, very human types of activities, which I'm completely behind. Don, from your point of view, what do you feel we can do to help stay conscious during this time period where idolatry is off the chart and a group of people, and it's a small group of people called Trump's base, relatively speaking small, uh, what we can do to help to mediate and soften and include, quite honestly. Well, that's a, that's a very profound question. I see this in my practice on a daily basis. Uh, a number of my patients are really suffering the psychological consequences of uh, Donald Trump's presidency. Yes. And I think that... Um, what we are really ultimately required to do if we are going to uh, find our way through this uh, moment in our history is to take upon ourselves the burden of our own freedom. And mass society does encourage uh, participación mystique. It encourages us to lose ourselves in the collective Mm -hmm. And democracy requires quite the opposite uh, attitude. It requires consciousness. It requires critical thinking. It requires courage. It requires engagement. Um, 
and 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 ultimately uh, uh, being able to uh, explore from within what the impact of the political world is upon one's own psyche. Um, and I think that is an inner task uh, one can find in one's dreams. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the very material that one needs to work on by in, a, in, a, in order to become more politically conscious and aware and a more informed citizen. Um, anxiety is a powerful force in our world today. <clears throat> um, uh, and the uh, right now we have hurricanes that we've never seen the, the force of before descending upon this country. We have a, a North Korean um, leader who is... Uh, uh, threatening nuclear war, uh, and we're being held hostage to uh, the project of making the earth the source of our gold. And yeah. now I think we're discovering that we, we are coming up against a limit that we have to wrestle with in terms of a more adequate value system to guide us. We need wisdom, and uh, that wisdom can certainly come from uh, the, the traditions that we all share, but it, it has to come as well from a an existential encounter with the world that we're living in, and thinking uh, openly and humanly as possible about uh, where our where our lives are going and what we can do to shape them in the way that we need to to make them uh, fulfilled and worthy. Uh, and and I think that's ultimately a spiritual task um, mm-hmm. that uh, requires a kind of uh, religious commitment to becoming a good citizen, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So those would be some of the things that I would say as an analyst. And I, I yeah. understand there are there are many other um, strategies that that we can draw upon, including sure. uh, empowering each other by joining together in whatever collective ways we can to uh, remind people that we're still here and that we're not, we're not lying down for this um, and just waiting it out. Yes, exactly. That's very beautifully put, Don. I really appreciate how you've articulated that. I would underscore it with um, just alerting people to an old book that needs to be renewed in our psyches and that's by a Jungian analyst named Eric Neumann, and it's called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic. And he mm. closes with something very similar, Don, to what you um, just re- what what you just um, articulated. Mm. I'm wondering if I can read it. Please, please. It is only when the human being learns to experience herself as the creature of a creator who made light and darkness, good and evil, that she becomes aware of her own self as a paradoxical totality in which the opposites are linked together as they are in the Godhead. That's part of it, but you said more in terms of how we have to act in the world. But it is mm-hmm. a spiritual task, and it takes enormous Definitely. courage. Yes, it yes. does. This is what is being reflected back to us in these conditions. It's 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 glaring. <laughs> you can't miss yeah. it. And right. so, so 
about this idea of a silver lining that nothing happens by mistake and that there's so let's just say that there is an ultimate good that is getting a chance to get expressed here. It is perhaps our own inner union that is being forced to take place here by externally very difficult conditions, virtually external threats, which is oftentimes, I mean, wasn't it that the thing that brings people together? I mean, wasn't it Jung who spoke about the role of the UFO in the human psyche, whether they exist or not as such? Phenomenologically, they are playing a role in helping us unify ourselves as a species, right? Yes, yes. So it's there is, for all of the distaste and the lack of grace and refinement and fine aesthetic that we find in our current uh, just uh, so distasteful president of the United States, basically a mafia figure without, you know, parsing it too finely, um, we are just pressed to work with ourselves and our own psyche and our own voices to be heard loud and clear over the airwaves, sort of like what we're all doing right now. So Tim Snyder, I think, would be very pleased to know how we are broadcasting our own thoughts and feelings about this situation in which we find ourselves. And the narcissism is so severe a condition in his psyche that wherever he goes, he's still talking about the millions of people that showed up at the inauguration. I mean, mean, it's unbelievable, you know. He goes to speak to even the Boy Scouts, and that's the subject at hand. Not the Boy Scouts, but who attended my inauguration. I mean, you know, I'm laughing only to keep myself from crying. But this is the state of things, and I think it's having a very positive effect I honestly, on a lot of people, I I will say since Don, you made reference to our planet and the the destruction of what's happening because of the peculiar uh, perspective on climate change. Um, at a conference I was at recently, I learned that there is more big money being sunk into green renewable energy initiatives and. Um, firms that invest only in renewables than ever before. It's since the uh, election of Donald Trump, it has doubled and tripled Mm. because people are so concerned. So it's interesting. As a result, as a polar response to this condition, there's a lot of good that's actually happening. Yes, I think that's very important to emphasize, Mitchell, and I'm glad you're making that point. Uh, And just so long as we don't normalize what's happening here in terms of the administration and his leadership and even all the people he has appointed, we cannot normalize what they're doing. Oh, my God, yes. I'm so glad you're saying that because this has been a pain inside me since, the beginning of this whole debacle. 
you know. Yeah. And a lot is getting uncovered, a lot of the madness of the system. And the underlying system also, by the way, which is, yep. you know, not to get overly politically controversial, but, you know, in many ways, with some variation, of course, the Cheney-Bush White House was continued by everyone's favorite, Mr. Obama. And it's it's hiding a tremendous amount of pain, and that that whole history that you were speaking of earlier, Joanna, of the genocides taking place on our own soil or that the United States has been a perpetrator of. And sometimes we have a, you know, uh, a softly spoken charismatic figure in the White House that softens the blow of that pain so we don't feel it so exquisitely, but now we are. That's right. You know what I mean, and it's uh, not to go too deep into that subject, but you know there is a real issue referred to as the deep state, and that is the warmongering, normalized state of war that we are perpetually in with Afghanistan, with Iraq, and long before that, you know, it was General Smedley Butler who back in the 1920s nailed it when he said, war is a racket. I have been basically hired through the United States military to defend corporations all over Central America with the U.S. Army and U.S. soldiers and blood. I paraphrase yeah. the end, but you know who I mean and what I'm saying. So this is not new, and it has been war has been completely normalized, and... I feel, God willing, people are seeing that more and more as well. So, last yes. words, Don Farrell and Joanna Mincer, last words for our audience during this enriching, difficult, difficult dialogue, but deeply enriching. Don, would you like to start us off and well, we'll I, end with I a do touch of yin? Yes, I'd just like to make one final comment here. I think it's helpful to look at our history in terms of the question of what patterns and what purposes and, and, and what questions are emerging in this moment in our history that do require reflection and that do require discernment uh, because it may well be a, a, a moment of transformation that yes. uh, doesn't it doesn't look that way perhaps but it may well carry the seeds of transformation within it mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I, I think that uh, having a somewhat transcendent perspective about all of this uh, lead, lifts one out of the immediacy of it and the the immediate impact of it in such mm-hmm. a way that we might we might begin to say this this is a time that we had to go through as a country. Uh, we we had to bring this shadow material into uh, a more public arena so that we can assimilate it and uh, internalize it and face it and uh, create new structures out of it. And that's my hope for what uh, this may be leading to ultimately. But I know there's a lot Beautiful. of suffering pain that we'll have to endure before we get there, of course. Very true. Well put, Don. I 
so appreciate I would just, everything uh, you've I done would just, and um, contributed. Close with Joanna, what um, with what uh, Timothy Snyder uh, quotes in his little book. He quotes Hamlet, and he says, "The time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite that ever I was born to make it right." <laughs> How fitting, how fitting. <laughs> yes. So on the note of feeling out of joint, I want to thank you both so much for your input today and your deep thought on the subject and contributing to a better world, very honestly. And um, I so appreciate both of you so much. Well, thank you, uh, Mitchell, for the opportunity. Enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. We will speak soon. Bye bye now. Yes. Bye bye. Donald Farrell and bye bye now. Joanna Mincer, such thoughtful people who have been scholarly and thoughtful and studied for so long on exactly these subjects and bringing history to bear in the contemporary time period in ways that can help to enrich us all, which is really why I wanted to have them on today with me to discuss the current pain that we are all feeling and the sadness and the grief, as Dom was speaking about before, that Hitler was so deprived of, and not just him, but entire generations, especially of males, and it goes on today. Uh, We were taught not to feel or certainly express emotions. That was girlish, and thankfully, we are forging a new man, a new definition, which has heart, mind, and soul in a unified field, and it feels a whole lot better. And, of course, even in my life, I was subject to some of that kind of programming. But thankfully, myself and many of my friends and peer groups – snapped out of it, (laughs) snapped out of that bizarre trance, as Milton Erickson would put it, and we came to another level of uh, inner awakening and reality, so we can be deeply feeling and understand that that is actually an expression of masculinity and the feminine inside that, and it's all good, because biologically we are both and all and so it should be psychologically and emotionally as well. So I want to thank you all for being here today and listening in on our roundtable on authority. And I want to remind you that A Better World is a nonprofit, a 501c3, and we manage to survive and sustain because of your generosity and recognizing that an investment in a better world is uh, an investment in democracy and keeping the voice of the people alive. So thank you so much. And remember that we have a free newsletter, a better world newsletter. It comes out every week, just once a week, and it announces the radio show and it announces the weekly Monday 7 o'clock EST uh, television show. Last is there is a retreat that I am offering called the Tao of Relationship, a Better World and Heaven on Earth seminar series. It's going to be up in the beautiful 
foliage-rich Wyndham, New York, and it's the weekend of September 22nd to the 24th. I'll be working with people with both Qigong, so our relationship to Earth first and foremost gets nourished, and then with each other in looking at and exploring the depth of relationship, of developing empathy, of developing listening skills, and the tenets of healthy relationship. We'll be using therapeutic theater and other means to help to deepen our good relationships, authentic relationships with each other. So if you are interested, call me at 212-420-0800. That's 212-420-0800. Or write by email to mjr at abetterworld.net mjr at a betterworld.net plus i love hearing from you about your comments about the show and about other shows as well as well as your suggestions for others so that's the story for this evening i want to thank you all from all over the world i'm thrilled that we have people listening from the uk and denmark and australia and south africa and all over Canada, Europe, and of course the United States. It's uh, it's a better world family, folks. It's building community through the airwaves, and uh, I so appreciate your enjoyment of the show and your input. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Mm-hmm.